Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah here. And just a reminder that after the guests have gone, the conversation continues on our Twitter, Insta, and Facebook communities. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic. Find us at Principle of Charity on all platforms and be part of the discussion. Let us know if you thought the guests were charitable, if you had your mind changed, or if you learned something. And if there's a topic you're interested in, let us know. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. It asks us to listen before we try to persuade and asks us to understand that we may be wrong. Furthermore, it encourages us to be as curious as we can about the other's perspective. And on that note, Emil, what's our topic for today? Hey, Lloyd, our topic today is called Just Desserts, Do Criminals Deserve to be Punished? Now, when someone breaks the law or does something morally reprehensible, and if they did it voluntarily and were of sound mind, most people have an instinct that they should be punished for it, that they deserve to be punished as they did the wrong thing and need to be held to account. At the base of this is a sense that we are morally responsible for our actions and we should get our just desserts if we make bad choices. The criminal law itself codifies this assumption. Sure, there are other reasons we may want to put criminals behind bars, such as uh, deterring others from committing the same crime or, or keeping society safe by having dangerous people locked away, or even the aim of rehabilitation, which asks us to ensure that those convicted of crimes will emerge as better, not worse citizens. But these are all forward-looking concerns which use punishment to better society in their own way. At the heart of it still lies the backward-facing instinct, the instinct of retribution, that that regardless of whether punishment can help society in some way, a person who has done wrong actually deserves to be punished for their wrongdoing. But why do they deserve it? Well, we feel it's obvious, isn't it? We've got free will, we control our actions, and we're morally accountable for our choices. Naturally, there are some caveats and gray areas like where we might be forced to do something or, or where there's a brain injury or mental illness. That means we're not truly free in our choices. But those exceptions just prove the rule that when we're unimpaired, we deserve to be held to account. But once you start peeling this onion, things start to unravel a bit. Are we really in control of our actions? We, we didn't choose our upbringing. And we know the huge effect that things like trauma and poverty can have both on our decision-making and our brain chemistry. And we didn't choose all those lucky and unlucky events that impacted on us. We didn't choose our parents, and we certainly didn't choose our DNA. So how free are we actually when we take all of this into account? But even if we do take all of this seriously, there's still that feeling we have inside ourselves that we are in charge, that even with all that history and neurology guiding us, there's still an us that makes the final decision. Now, the shocking news is that most philosophers and deep thinkers in this field, in fact, believe that our actions are, in a sense, entirely determined. That when you look at things closely and decide to, you know, for example, choose tea over coffee in the morning or to start the bar fight rather than turn the other cheek, all there is in that moment is your entire history leading up to that moment, your brain chemistry that you have, and the laws of physics, none of which you're actually in control of in the moment you make that decision. That although we may feel like we can do what we want, we in fact could not have done anything else but to choose the tea or to hit the guy at the bar. Now, this is pretty radical stuff for those who aren't familiar with the free will determinism debate. But I confess, to me, it does make intuitive sense. When I stop and really examine how thoughts happen, I realize that they just emerge. In a sense, there's no separate me that thinks the thoughts. And I urge you to try that for yourself. 
But all of this gets a bit more complex, so please bear with me uh, for a moment longer. Even though most philosophers agree that our choices are determined, that we in fact could not do other than what we do, there's a big disagreement within that community. Some called free will skeptics or incompatibilists think that if everything is determined, then by definition, there is no free will. It's one or the other. Now, that seems pretty logical, right? But the other group, probably the bigger group called compatibilists, think that we can have our cake and eat it, that we can both accept that everything is determined and still hang on to a belief in free will, at least one that means we're morally responsible for what we do. As you can imagine, all of this is extremely pertinent to the question of whether criminals deserve to be punished. If there's no free will, as our guest Greg Caruso believes, then it would be absurd to think that someone deserves to be punished for what they did. Surely no one deserves to be punished if they could not have done otherwise. But our other guest, Katrina Sifford, has a different take. While she knows that in some physical sense life is determined, she believes that there is still something morally significant when we act under circumstances where we theoretically could have done otherwise. That is where we're not forcibly constrained and we can use our rational minds to make decisions. You know, for example, that we are less morally responsible if a gun is put to our head forcing us to punch the guy in the bar than if we use our unimpaired rational brain to make that decision voluntarily. Now, suffice to say, Katrina holds the more mainstream view, but she's gone a step further and she's grounded her theory, not just in philosophy, but in neurology. She's looked at our brain itself and believes that the areas that govern our executive function should be seen as the locus of our moral responsibility. So in this episode, we are going to burrow into the fascinating question of whether we are morally responsible for our actions. We'll have some fun asking Greg to paint a picture of the justice system. If we take away moral responsibility entirely, what does that look like? And we will peel apart our brains looking at why Katrina thinks that our executive function is the seat of moral responsibility, the seat of our just desserts. Lloyd, tell us a little more about Greg and Katrina before we bring them on. Emil, our two guests today are Katrina Sifford and Greg Caruso. Let me start and tell you a little bit about Katrina first. She's a professor and chair of philosophy at Chicago's Elmhurst University and co-editor-in-chief of the publication Neuroethics. Katrina got her PhD from the University of London. And before becoming a philosopher, Katrina earned a Juris Doctorate and worked at a, as a senior research analyst on criminal justice projects at the United States National Institute of Justice. She's the author of numerous publications on criminal law, punishment, neuroethics, and neurolaw. And she has recently co-authored Responsible Brains, which looks at the role of neuroscience in determining a young person's culpability for crime. Greg Caruso, our other guest, Emil, is a professor of philosophy at New York State University in Corning. He's also an honorary professor at Sydney's Macquarie University and co-director of the Justice Without Retribution Network at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland. Greg has written on retributivism, which he rejects, and in his latest book, Just Desserts, he debates with fellow philosopher Daniel Dennett on moral responsibility, punishment, and free will. Emil, one of the big agreements both Katrina and Greg have is that they believe the justice system needs reforming and that we are often less morally responsible than most people intuitively believe. But where Greg takes a radically bold line, imagining a justice system that isn't based on moral responsibility, Katrina sees moral responsibility as essential and grounded in the brain's executive function. Let's bring on the guest, Emil. Thank you so much, Greg and Katrina, for joining us on this episode. Um, Greg, let's start with you uh, and the more radical position. Why do you think criminals do not deserve to be punished? And I mean, it'd be great if you could attempt a, a short explanation of determinism and free will within all of this, because I know it sits at the, at the base of it all. Yeah, so my, my skepticism about criminal punishment, in particular kind of punishment called retributive punishment, has to do with my views on free will. So I'm a free will skeptic, um, and as a free will skeptic, I maintain that who we are and what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control. And because of this, we're never morally responsible in a really particular but pervasive sense. 
it's a sense that philosophers sometimes call basic dessert moral responsibility. So this is the kind of moral responsibility that would make an agent truly deserving of praise or blame or punishment and reward in a purely basic sense, meaning it's not justifying it or referencing it in terms of forward-looking goods or some future benefit it may produce. So for for example, in the criminal context, one of the leading forms of justification for legal punishment is retributive punishment, um, which maintains that you know, absent any excusing conditions like mental illness or insanity, wrongdoers are morally responsible for their actions exactly in this basic dessert sense. And because of that, they deserve to be punished in accordance with their wrongdoing. And that dessert, that punishment is supposed to serve some, is supposed to be intrinsically morally good. That is, it's good without reference to any other forward-looking benefit. It's not that we're punishing them because it'll deter crime or make us safer or help in the moral formation of the wrongdoer. We're punishing them simply because they deserve it. Um, and sometimes, as, you know, people talk about just desserts here, uh, not deserts of what we, what we have after dinner, but the idea that someone mm-hmm. deserves some sort of fundamental blame or punishment. And so as a skeptic, I deny that agents have this kind of responsibility. And because of that, I deny that um, retributive punishment is justified. And, and I think probably is a good moment just to go into what are the factors beyond our control? I mean, it's so counterintuitive for most people to think that there are so many factors that mean we fundamentally, in the end of the day, are just not responsible morally for our actions. Yeah, so it's a, it, it is a, hard, it's a hard position to uh, reconcile with our kind of intuitive, common sense ideas about agents, right? But the, the historical sort of threat to free will and this kind of moral responsibility was determinism. So determinism was the thesis that, or is the thesis, that facts about the remote past in conjunction with the laws of nature entail as only one unique future. Technically speaking, though, I'm not a hard determinist, so I remain neutral on the truth of determinism. And so what my view is, is that whether the universe is deterministic or indeterministic, we would still lack this kind of free will. I'll just mention another factor beyond our control, besides determinism and indeterminism, would also be luck. And luck is, a, is something that is beyond the control of the agent. And that could be the luck of who our parents are, whether we're born into rich or poor nations, whether we're born into abusive households or loving and caring households. So the kind of luck that makes us the individuals we are, what's called constitutive luck, it's the kind of lottery of life, the, the, the factors uh, of luck that shape us as individuals, make us have the kind of psychological predispositions, the kinds of habitual likes and dislikes that we have as agents would be the result of these factors, again, beyond our control. So whether it's determinism, indeterminism, or luck, um, agents are the result of factors they don't control because we don't control factors that are determined. We yeah. don't control indeterminate events and we don't yeah. control matters of luck. Yeah. And in the end of the day, it all seems to boil down to the point that we couldn't have done otherwise in a, in a sort of physical sense. I mean, Katrina, let's come to you. I mean, why do you think criminals are morally deserving of, of being punished? And it would be good if you could if you could touch on where you stand on the free will determinism question and, and, and why you think we can still be morally responsible, even if you believe our choices are determined in, in some sense. And we'll, we'll get to the neuroscience of it all a bit later. Primarily, the group of philosophers that hold are willing to hold people responsible in this basic dessert sense that Greg was talking about are compatibilists. They acknowledge that there are threats like determinism and indeterminism and luck. Um, but they say that we can think about free will in a way that is compatible with those things, right? So even if it is the case that there are a lot of these features of the world that are outside of my control, I still have certain sorts of capacities that mean that when I issue an action, that action belongs to me, right? And those sorts of capacities are the ones that we we commonly think of as most important to being human, right? Being able to deliberate and think about things and plan and choose our actions after these sorts of deliberations. Um, And so if compatibilists often come up with some sort of story about the thing that makes us responsible, but that story is compatible with the idea of determinism. The the sort of compatibilism that I ascribe to is reason's responsiveness, which means if we have the ability to recognize moral reasons for action and to respond to those 
reasons for action, then we are responsible, right? That's kind of what makes us human. And it's what makes us deserving of praise and blame, even when that praise and blame is formal in the form of a verdict or punishment. And so we're responsible morally, even if in a sense, we were always going to do what we did. Right. So even if the fact that I chose on this day after some deliberation to, you know, set my neighbor's house alight because she is so annoying and she really got on my nerves this weekend and her dog was barking all night. I decided after some deliberation that I was going to set her house alight. Even if that action was determined, that action was issued from my psychological states of preferences and deliberation where I had the capacity to understand the moral reasons against that action. And I chose to do it. Right. I selected that action, yeah. even if it was determined that I selected that action. When I select that action, I am deserving of certain sorts of responses, including moral blame, you know, indignation, horror in the case of setting my neighbor's house alight. Can I ask you, Greg, let's let's just go to you. I mean, your view is the very radical one. What would a justice system look like if we're not taking that sort of backward looking retributive justice approach, which says, people deserve to be punished for, for their wrongdoings. What, what does the world of justice look like? We would have to reject a kind of retributive justification for punishment, precisely because it's inconsistent with the kind of skepticism I adopt. I don't think agents are deserving in this fundamental sense. But that doesn't mean we can't um, have other justifications for imposing, say, sanctions on seriously dangerous criminals. So um, I offer a, a, a kind of justification for incapacitation that would be grounded in a kind of right of self-defense and prevention of harm to others, analogous to the kind of justification we give for, say, quarantine. So let's say I came to visit you in person and we were having this conversation in Sydney and um, I got on a plane and I get off the plane and I test positive for Ebola. I think we all agree that the state has some kind of justification for limiting my liberty, i.e. quarantining me. And the justification would um, be grounded in this right of self-defense and prevention of harm to others. We, we need to restrict my liberty of movement because I could present a, uh, a risk of a pandemic causing uh, harm to a great number of people. And you could justify that incapacitation and that quarantine without appealing to just desserts or free will or retribution or payback or moral responsibility. In fact, in cases of communicable disease, we tend to think agents aren't responsible in this fundamental sense. And so what I would argue is that we could give a similar kind of justification for incapacitating seriously dangerous criminals, like you know serial killers, child molesters, people who pose significant threats to the safety of society. We could justify restricting their liberty, incapacitating them um, on a, again, on a, uh, on a foundation of this right of self-defense or defensive rights, again, analogous to this justification we have for quarantine. But if we were to do this, it would entail a whole bunch of major reforms for the criminal justice system. So, so for example, I mean, um, you know, on this account, um, I maintain that um, this is not even in a form of punishment. We're not punishing the Ebola patient when we um, quarantine them, um, at least by no intuitive definition. Uh, punishment usually requires more than just a restriction of liberty. It, you know, in the legal context, it includes a condemnatory or expressive disapproval component. It usually entails some kind of imposition of intentional harm or harsh treatment. Um, and we're not doing that mm -hmm. in the case of the quarantined patient. So what I would argue is that we have this right to, to incapacitate, but we have to treat the individuals humanely. And just like in the, in the context of health, the goal of the system should be rehabilitation and reintegration. Technically, if you're just looking forward, you're not in the world of retributive justice where you're punishing people, but you're just looking at how to improve society. You could want to punish criminals as a deterrence to others or, or to try to create morally sensitive human beings who believe Absolutely, that yeah. there is um, this, this thing that we, we experience of, 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 of free will is an illusion, but it's an illusion might worth keeping. Why do you think that it's immoral to use punishment as a forward-looking tool? Yeah, so there's, there's two things going on here. 
the free will skeptic or a free will skeptic has other alternatives besides my preferred model of what I call the public health quarantine model. So there are different reasons one could punish someone. The retributive reason is they deserve it. Um, That's a backward-looking reason. A forward-looking reason, as you point out, would be, well, it's to deter crime. It's to prevent others from engaging in similar acts. That's a forward-looking reason. That reason is available for skeptics to accept because that reason doesn't presuppose the kind of dessert I reject. I, however, reject it for different reasons. I reject that kind of justification for punishment because I think it has certain kind of moral features that are problematic. Um, Like when we punish people for purely deterrence reasons, we could often um, perhaps justify really harsh forms of punishment if they were to successfully deter crime. Like let's say there's a a string of low-level petty crimes Well, what if we could get the first petty criminal and just say hypothetically, we gave them some really harsh punishment and effectively deterred all other would-be petty criminals. Well, that would be an effective Mm. deterrence reason to give this person some sort of harsh treatment. Maybe we give them 20 years in jail for stealing some gum. If it were were an effective deterrent, it'd be hard for that forward-looking theorist to say, well, there's something wrong with that. Yet on my model, there's something fundamentally mm. wrong with that punishment uh, because it's disproportionate to the risk that that, post, that person poses to society. And this kind of runs contrary to certain other kind of moral concerns that some philosophers like myself have, which are kind of very Kantian intuition yeah, that yeah. we shouldn't use individuals simply as a means to an end, but we should treat them as ends in themselves. Yeah, great. Thank you. That's That's really clear. I mean, Katrina, what do you think of the the vision of the justice system that Greg paints? I mean, what, what do you think is good about it? What's problematic? And can you really treat complex things like a propensity for violence to a disease like Ebola? Well, it's it's not a justice system on Greg's view, right? I mean, we're not, we're not allocating out justice. Yes, right. Uh, it's yeah. instead, it's a public health issue crime. And, and it's something that we're dealing with in the same way that we deal with other sorts of public health, health issues, such as disease. Um, so it's not that he's revamping the justice system. He's advocating for eliminating the justice system altogether, right? Nobody deserves punishment on Greg's view. And I think it's important kind of quickly to indicate that on Greg's view, someone who on purpose got Ebola in order to spread that disease to the community would be treated the same way as someone who accidentally, through no fault of their own, got Ebola, right? Those two people are the same sort of person on Greg's view, neither deserve praise or blame for what they've done. They both are just a hazard to the community that we need to contain and manage. And I, I have a I have real worries about collapsing the differences between people and their way in which actions are issued in this way, right? So a two-year-old can cause major problems, can accidentally or even on purpose in the two-year-old way, pull the trigger of a gun and kill someone. But they are not deserving of blame, certainly not criminal blame, because they do not have the sorts of capacities I was talking about earlier to recognize moral reasons and to respond to those moral reasons, right? But the two-year-old and the person who pulls the trigger with full cognitive capacities, an IQ of 170, you know, an ethicist, is kind of to be treated the same way on Greg's view. And I think that's really problematic, not just because I don't, I don't think that we can kind of manage criminal behavior um, using a public quarantine model, but also because it really dehumanizes people. Wouldn't the two-year-old be less dangerous and therefore potentially locked up for less length of time? Because if someone does something as an accident, then, you know, they would be a less dangerous virus than someone who does things on purpose. The two-year-old would be uh, less dangerous, assuming the two-year-old was not around loaded weapons, right? I mean, the environment of the two-year-old has a lot to do with the dangerousness of the two-year-old. But the the two Ebola persons are exactly the same level of dangerousness. If I could jump in just for a second. State of mind matters. Intention matters. Mans rea matters. 
on my account, but for different reasons than assessing legal guilt or retribution. Let's say we have two mothers, both of which leave their child in a hot car on a hot day, um, and the child dies because the parent had left the child in the car. Um, Let's say the first mother does it because um, she had a stomach virus last night. She She ate some bad sushi. She was up all night throwing up, and she hadn't made it to an important meeting this morning. She drops, they say, her older child off at daycare, but forgets the infant who fell asleep. It's an accident. And then the second mother, let's say, premeditatively plans to murder her child. She stages it to look like an accident. She goes into work intentionally leaving the child in the car. My argument would be that matters. That matters because these two women pose a significant difference in significant, they pose a difference, a significant difference in forward looking threat. I wanted to ask you more about, you know, to ask you about the neuroscience, Katrina, because rather than just arguing philosophically for moral responsibility, you've, you've actually looked at the evidence for it in the brain. And as I understand it, identified the executive function as, as the most relevant factor for moral responsibility. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? Now we know where to look to see if there are brain dysfunctions that are actually such that they would make the person not as culpable, right? So it looks like a dysfunction or even a tumor or some sort of issue with the brain that happens in certain regions is not as relevant to responsible action as um, dysfunction that would happen, for example, in the executive functions. And one of the things we showed, for example, is that if you look at cases of legal insanity, oftentimes the source of mental disorders and illnesses that the court has found to be exculpatory do tend to create disorders in the executive functions. What, what, what is the executive function exactly? So these are the functionings, the functions that happen up in the prefrontal cortex. They're the kind of, they're part of the newest part Mm -hmm. of the brain. They tend to issue top Mm -hmm. down control over other regions of the brain. So information from facial recognition and emotionality and things that are the result of older parts of the brain are considered data for the executive functions that that are capable of deliberating with regard to that information and memories, inhibiting our actions. I mean, can you give us some examples of where this neuroscience approach to to, an executive function-centered neuroscience-based approach to criminal responsibility might differ from the current legal approach? Like, when might you consider someone not morally responsible where the legal system would and, and vice versa? So, yes, the one of the most important contributions of the book is for us to reconsider the responsibility that we assign to juveniles. So it looks like the executive functions are not fully developed until 23, 24, sometimes until 26. Um, And this is important. I mean, this is something we know by folk psychology to some extent. Everyone knows that a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old is more impulsive, less capable of inhibiting action in certain circumstances. Um, But it looks like that this is because that those are the functions of the executive functions and those executive functions are not fully developed until later. And so we argue that full responsibility should certainly never accrue before 18, which it does in certain sorts of criminal cases in the United States. And really, shouldn't um, we shouldn't assume that a person has full responsibility until at least 21, which goes completely against the grain of criminal responsibility structures in the United States. Yeah. Another area we've worked on is psychopathy. So we've argued that a lot of psychopaths are actually responsible um, because they have fully intact executive functions. So it looks like some um, psychopaths may have diminished executive functioning, but many don't. It's a very heterogeneous category. Um, that's not very well diagnosed by the tools we have, but there certainly shouldn't be an assumption that one is not responsible because one is diagnosed as a psychopath, because it looks like that that is the sort of um, disorder that can be corrected for by the executive functions, right? Just like colorblindness can be corrected for. I mean, in in, in a sense, everybody is still subject to their brain and subject to the decisions that are determined by their executive function. But you're saying that there's still a morally salient difference between people with well-functioning executive you know, functions within their brain and people who, 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 for whom it's impaired. Yeah, everyone is their brain, first of all, in my view. 
right? Really, not you're not subject to your brain. You are your brain. And some brains have the capacity to recognize moral reasons and to act in accordance with those moral reasons, and some don't. And that's a really significant di- difference. The law can impact the decision-making of certain sorts of brains and not other ones. It does not impact the brain of the two-year-old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Greg, free will skepticism unravels, you know, our sense of moral agency, which tells us we're free and responsible for our actions. That's what I understand. I mean, I was reading in the neuroscientist Anil Seth's recent book, Being You, and he counts that sense of agency, that deep feeling we have, that we are the subject of our life and the author of our choices as a key experience of consciousness. Now, he acknowledges that it's technically an illusion, but it's an illusion in the same way that all consciousness is. For example, our, our perception of color um, as an experience of mind is something we create through the mechanisms of consciousness. There's no red out there in the world. It's just waves of light that we create a redness from in our brains. I, I guess my question to you is, isn't moral responsibility an illusion worth keeping in the way the color red is? It's so foundational to the way we experience the world. And it's very helpful if you want to create morally sensitive human beings. Why do you want to unravel it? For me, I think the first thing you need to do is acknowledge that there are multiple senses of responsibility. And the skeptic um, is not denying all kinds of responsibility. It's simply denying basic dessert moral responsibility. In particular, I think Mm -hmm. there are several other notions of responsibility that are extremely important and need to be preserved. In particular, um, Dirk Piraboom and myself and a few others have started to defend and develop a sort of purely forward-looking account of moral responsibility that Hmm. is sensitive to reasons responsiveness, in fact, requires the reasons responsiveness of agents, and employs a kind of conversational approach with wrongdoers. But it does so in a way that doesn't presuppose desert or justify backward-looking reactive attitudes like resentment and indignation, moral anger. So, for example, if someone were to do some wrong you know, act, I could engage them in a kind of moral conversation. I could express moral protest. I could even express a kind of what you might call blame, minus the kind of anger blame that compatibilists want to preserve. Um, and the moral protest would be a indication to engage in this kind of reflective process where the agent looks at the, you could ask them, why did they decide to act this way? What were their reasons for doing so? The agent then reflects upon those reasons, notices perhaps a flaw within themselves, some kind of disposition that they may be better without. And then the purpose of this moral protest is to encourage a kind of internal change in the agent. And this is part of the moral formation of agents that both Katrina and I want to preserve. There are these kind of really important interpersonal react, um, you know, moral practices that do need to be preserved. But my argument is what doesn't need to be preserved is the assumptions of basic desert. One thing is worth just making clear to listeners is that in your, as I understand it, in your world of, of no free will or free will skepticism, people can still change. People can get better. People can make better choices. It's not like we're in a d- determinism doesn't mean, oh, I'm just going to lie in bed all day because nothing I do matters. That's something that people mo- often misinterpret about the idea that we don't have free will. Greg, I want to broaden it out a little bit and just ask you, I mean, once, once you go down this path on free will and responsibility, it doesn't just shift the way you look at those convicted of crimes, but, but at every action you see around you. Like a friend of mine recently was, was, was really acting like a bit of an asshole and I was upset with him and I blamed him in my head. I then had a moment where I wondered if he was slightly on the spectrum and because of that, my anger subsided a bit and I stopped blaming him. But in a world of, of free will skepticism, no free will, There's no distinction between someone who has a mental condition, which may prompt them to act in a certain way, and someone else who's just an arsehole in in terms of the blame sense. Neither could have acted otherwise. How do you think about blame and also credit in in your life when you go around your daily life? And does free will skepticism strangely open up more compassion as we recognize that everyone's just literally doing everything they physically can. I would reject the notion that uh, individuals are deserving of blame, again, in this basic sense. Um, that doesn't, again, mean that we can't engage in moral protest when your friend is a, 
you know, a jerk to you. Um, we can't um, even demand an apology, but I don't think the individual is deserving. By analogy and, and to maintain the symmetry, I do also reject um, basically deserved praise. Now, not all skeptics do. Some skeptics adopt some kind of asymmetric view between blame and praise, partly because blame causes a certain type of harm that maybe praise doesn't. And so the threshold, the justification is a little higher for blame than it is for praise. But I'm generally of the view they both have to go if we're presupposing that these are yeah. grounded in some basic notion of dessert. Um, but I'm not, I'm not alone in this. Like Albert Einstein, for example, was a, uh, a hard determinist. He rejected free will. And in this really famous interview he gave um, that I like to sometimes cite, he talks about, um, you know, not only does he not believe he's free and that in individuals are, uh, you know, morally responsible, he also doesn't think he deserves any praise, let's say, for having developed his theory of general relativity. Um, and that's because, again, he thinks his actions are the result of factors ultimately beyond his control. Um, I think there's a kind of humility that comes with this attitude that is sort of beneficial. I yeah. mean, blame and praise, for example, especially blame, let's focus on blame, is often extremely corrosive to our interpersonal relationships. It often does more harm than good, especially when you're talking about interpersonal relationships where you're concerned with the moral formation of the individual, like a parental relationship with a child, for example, or a teacher with a pupil. Um, and actually, there's a great deal of literature from uh, social psychology and experimental philosophy that shows us that um, angry blame and assessments of blame often get wrapped up in excessively punitive and excessively um, um, kind of harsh treatments towards other people. And often we even assess individuals' levels of control to justify the level of blame we want to um, impose or punishment we want to impose on the individual. It isn't as the <laughs> compatibilist assumes. That is, at least the literature is suggesting empirically it's, this is how it's working. It's not that we first assess the executive functioning and the reasons responsiveness of agents, and then we, uh, you know, we, uh, we proportion our blame and punishment in accordance with how much control we think they have. What actually happens is that if some individual doesn't act we disapprove of and we're angry and we want to blame them, we will vary the level of control we think is needed to justify that kind of uh, reactive approach. That's and fascinating. what seems to be happening is that That's the desire to blame and punish is driving the cart. It's not the, it's the, you know, the cart before the horse. The, it's the inverse relationship. And yeah. that is potentially dangerous and harmful especially when the goal is to you know, produce morally um, you know, developed agents. Lloyd, I'm just going to ask you a question, actually, before we jump into your section. But you founded the Centre for Violence and Reconciliation in South Africa just after the end of apartheid you know, to help those who'd faced trauma, including rape. And, and you listened to a lot of those stories and, and, and you saw a lot of pretty horrible stuff. Listening to this conversation and thinking about the perpetrators, the apartheid supporters and the police, are you blaming them more or less for what they did? Or are they sort of just products of their history and neurology? I find it very hard not to blame them. Personally, um, I saw evil, wicked, brutal acts, death squads uh, in operation in apartheid South Africa it's very hard to feel, and I, and, and I understand uh, the free will, free will skeptic intellectual side of it, but it's very hard to excuse that type of behavior for me to say it was a set of circumstances. I know it was a set of circumstances uh, intellectually, so I would agree with Greg you know, quite strongly, but at the same time, I sort of tend to orientate myself to Katrina's view a little where I go, there has to be some form of moral responsibility because without that, I fear that we, we have a worse world. And I think for the victims, I, I must have seen thousands of victims over 10 years, um, whether they were victims of death squads, parents who lost their children, rape victims. There wasn't... A victim I saw that I felt there wasn't 
some degree of wanting some form of, let's call it either soft or hard retribution. Now, I don't mean that they all wanted the perpetrators to be incarcerated, but I think they wanted some form of account. And when victims don't get that sense of account, their mental health suffers deeply. And I think Katrina would probably know this from her work around rape right now, which is a particular crime uh, where perpetrators frequently don't get to account because the conviction rate is so low. And the damage to victims is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And I think from a utilitarian point of view, we sort of have to to, to work out what the, the, the pluses and minuses are of sometimes if we do believe in free will as, and, and is, is it still worthy of, of uh, deceiving ourselves at times because of the, of the, the consequence. I'm going to move over to you, Lloyd, but my only final word, I guess, is that I do find something consoling in the sort of radical compassion that comes through free will scepticism. Mm. I find mm. it quite a beautiful notion mm. and it does relieve us of some of our intense burdens of, 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 of feelings and retributive motives. But over to you, Lloyd. Thanks so much. Thank you, Emil. Before we move on to this part of the podcast, which is really focused on the principle of charity, I, I have to say that I found myself struggling with applying the principle of charity in this podcast more than any other. I, I sort of feel that in all the other episodes we've done, uh, whether it's been on is it moral to eat meat, you know, on, on voluntary assisted dying, I felt shifted and changed my mind. And I, in one sense, when I was listening to you, Greg, I found it very hard at times to listen. I, I felt an emotional need almost to instinctively reject what you were saying. And part of the principle of charity is to, is to listen and understand and not to instinctively reject. And, and here today, I found myself really struggling with that. I wanted to focus on your weakest argument. I wanted to actually disagree. I wanted to go, yes, but. And it's a good reminder just how hard it is to, to, to focus and to, to live the principle of charity as a value. Having said that, let's move on. And we are now going to test both of you in a very brief way. Um, and I'll, I'll use the test in inverted commas so we don't create any performance anxiety here. But I'm going to ask each of you, as we always do, to highlight the three strongest points of the other. Katrina, I'm going to start with you. What are, what are Greg's, from your point of view, the three strongest points of his argument? The first is that he's particularly worried about the locus of control for action, that he is uh, concerned about the stopping point for that locus of control, where we can say, there it is, there's where the person owns and controls that action. It's very difficult to describe that point from my perspective. And he does a good job at undermining the sort of view that I take where it's a capacity that one has, right? So that's the first strength. The second one is his worries about um, people being overly retributive in our criminal punishment. So Greg is right to be worried that blame, oftentimes this kind of retributive directed blame and the punishment that falls along it, alongside it or behind it is um, overly harsh, that we oftentimes let these emotions carry us into punishment that is not proportionate, that doesn't meet other sorts of instrumental ends that we really should care about, that overrides the sort of good that I was talking about when I was talking about punishment or retributive sentiment as similar to grief. And the third one, and I think this is his strongest um, position, is to worry about crime from this kind of um, help, you know, public health perspective, right? Crime is a public health problem. He's right about that. Just because I think that people are blameworthy doesn't mean that I don't think that there are all these contributing factors um, that go into people committing crimes. When I teach um, my college students, I say, you know, what do you think the crime rate is here in our little suburb of Chicago? And what do you think it is right over into that neighborhood of Austin in Chicago, which has one of the highest homicide and crime rates in the city, right? And the difference is, you know, 6% of males have been arrested by the age of 26 versus 46% in the other neighborhood. And that is not due to a difference in character necessarily amongst 
people, right? It's not, it's due to these sorts of environmental factors that he's worried about. And I do want to address those factors, even though I think that someone in the Austin neighborhood, when they gun someone down in a terrible homicide is blameworthy. So I like the fact that he makes us think from that perspective. Wonderful. Greg, you're in academic mode now. You're the professor (laughs) on on the scale of zero to 10, 10 being the highest. Just give a score. How charitable was Katrina to your point of view? Oh, that was a good 10. A 10. Fantastic. Okay. Let's, let, let's, let's go to you. Katrina's three strongest arguments. Well, I I mean, it's not hard to be charitable because I really respect Katrina and, and, this area that we work in actually is a very supportive community of people. And I, I actually respect the people who I disagree with perhaps as much, if not more than the people I agree with in this, in this field. So with Katrina, I think, you know, the, one of the strongest things is the focus on reasons, responsiveness and the importance it plays. I think both in the context of our folk psychological practices and Katrina does a great job showing how criminal law is grounded in these kind of folk psychological practices. And that the these practices and these institutions are very sensitive to the abilities and cap- and capacities of agents. And I think um, she does a particularly good job focusing on what exactly those capacities are that are relevant to these folk psychological categories. In her in her book on the responsible brain, I, I'm particularly supportive and um ex- and, and like the treatment of juveniles um, and that. The argument she gives for the the executive functioning of, of children um, is such that they shouldn't be held to the criminal standards of adults. I think the importance of executive functions um, and the roles that they play, I think, in cases of psychopathy is really interesting. And, and uh, you know, Katrina has, I think, a, a kind of controversial view about psychopathy in that a lot of philosophers think sociopaths are not responsible I actually find her treatment of sociopaths kind of convincing in the sense of the kind of executive functions that they still retain mm-hmm. are really relevant. And maybe the common kind of thinking about sociopaths isn't as clear cut as people mm-hmm. tend to think. And the last thing that I like about Katrina's view, I think, is there is a, a natural desire to want to retain these everyday practices. And there's a sense of dessert, I think, that is common that people care about and plays an important role even down to the level of games. Like we think in sports, people deserve a trophy if they do well. We think Mm. that they deserve um, a penalty card if they commit a foul. Um, And I think that the compatibilist attempt to want to preserve and capture what exactly is going on in these um, exchanges is both important and necessary to understand the kind of moral complexity that we find ourselves in, in the the world that we now live. Great. Katrina, how did Greg do out of 10? Very well. I'd give him a 10 as well. You give him a 10? I would. You know, we... Greg and I are friends and he's right. We really, you know, philosophers in this area are not trying to win points on one another. We're trying to figure out what is the case and what we ought to do. And I, you know, I think we really help each other in trying to accomplish those goals. While, while we on that, on, 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 on both of you being philosophers, one of the things around the principle of charity is, of course, communication, how we argue, how we speak. I've always wanted to ask two philosophers this question. I find that when I listen to philosophers, I really struggle to understand some of you. I, I, it, it's quite jargon, jargon-filled. Um, it's quite hard to digest. I mean, I assume both of you as philosophers and your profession, and I'll call it a profession for the moment, want to get their argument out. Am I, am I wrong to say that there's some improvement to be done in, in the world of philosophy for people to be more charitable to how they understand you? I think that that, that's, that is important. And philosophy sort of started with this desire for shared conversation. You go back to Socrates and Plato and this kind of dialogue where individuals engage in a kind of, you know, collective enterprise of trying to pursue some truth. And it has kind of devolved into um an attempt to win points and win arguments and um, uh, to refute your opponent. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that the way that 
Katrina does philosophy, the way that many people in this area do philosophy is that we're very charitable about the way we represent the opponent's view. You don't want to set up a straw man. You don't want to set up the weakest version of an opponent just so you can Mm. knock it down. There's no victory in that. And there's no progress in that. So I think Mm. philosophers should um, and often do. I would say, you know, I, I do want to give credit to the discipline. I mean, good philosophers are charitable. In that mm, mm. I think that they try to present the opponent's view in the strongest form possible so that they're dealing with a real position. They're not dealing mm. with a position that no one holds. Yeah, as I think was reflected today, Katrina, what's your view about, about the philosophy discipline and improving the level of communication so we can digest some of these comments of yours? I think we have work to do, actually. I think that good philosophers are charitable to the opposing view because it is, it's a empty win, right? If you can take down the straw man. But I do think that we can be very jargony in the way in which we describe our positions and occupy kind of our little argumentative space. I, I edited journal and some of the papers that come in and I, you know, I feel like I have some broad expertise in ethical things. I cannot figure out the position that they're taking because it's such a minute position, right? It's somebody said something and then someone responded to it. Now I'm going to respond to the response and say that it's half right, right? And you just think this is a whole 10,000 word paper that really could be a footnote. And part of it is, you know, this usual sort of competitive desire to, to find a unique position, to say something that is, is different than what anyone else has said, to pick a hole in somebody's argument. I think that's a shame. I think that hyper-specialization of dis- sub-disciplines within philosophy and of positions within philosophy has underserved us. We need philosophers that are big thinkers. I mean, this is one another thing I could have said about Greg. He's attacking a whole criminal justice system, mm, right? Mm, mm, I mean, mm. he's taking on a big position. He's got big ideas. I'm really tired of philosophers taking tiny ideas and making giant papers out of them. I want us to argue about the big things, right? This is We're in a unique position to understand and deeply think about some of the biggest problems facing humanity, and we should be doing that. I agree. I'm sure both of you are familiar with the work of, of Kathleen Foss or Jonathan Schuler, um, Roy Barmester, uh, these psychologists who've done a series of experiments. And, and let's just, for example, take, take the view that those, the data was correct coming out of that. And, 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 and what they found was that when people stop believing they are free agents – uh, they stop seeing themselves as blameworthy for their actions. They volunteer less. They give less money to the homeless. Uh, their performance is poor in jobs. They're less grateful. Uh, they're less willing to learn from their mistakes. But I'm going, you know, praise can be corrosive. But if we're also undermining praise, you know, doesn't that remove the incentive to do good? And if we remove blame, doesn't it just encourage people to be wicked? And on that basis, I'd be saying, even if uh, free will doesn't exist, uh, which is the illusionist theory, should we not just be comfortable with the lie? Because from a utility point of view, it's just better. I mean, sometimes the truth isn't always good. And I'd love to hear both of your views about whether we should always be telling the truth. I mean, there's a whole literature on this. I mean, there is a philosopher, uh, his name is Saul Smolansky, who basically believes we don't have the kind of free will we think we do and defends what he calls an illusionist view Mm. that we still need to preserve the illusion of free will. Um, I disagree with Saul for a number of reasons. I mean, one, I disagree with the kind of assumption that it actually does more harm than good. Um, Some of those studies you mentioned, they have failed to replicate some of them. And some of them, if they, the, the findings that they, that, that do hold up, really only tell us a limited story about the short-term effects of first coming to question one's belief. Maybe you shouldn't do, do your taxes right after you're told you don't have free will for the first time. But I'm a little bit um, skeptical of the fear-mongering that comes with this view. It's very similar in my mind of the fear that came with the loss of God. I mean, the same concerns were raised there. Like, if we give up the belief of God, there's going to be no foundation of morality People are going to run out in the streets. They're going to have no reason to be moral. They're going to rape, murder, and steal. And what we find is as societies become more secular, that's not what they do. Um, 
And in fact, actually in more in countries and states with higher levels of religiosity, you sometimes find more, you find more crime. You've got to be careful about what the free will skeptical view denies and what it doesn't deny, what it rejects and what it can preserve. And what I think, you know, some of this fear is based on misunderstandings of what the view actually is. Katrina, your, your view, and particularly on, on that, on Saul Smolansky's view about, you know, let's keep the illusion going. Let's not tell the truth sometimes. Well, I'm, I'm going to start with my positive view, which is I really, truly believe that holding people responsible makes them better agents, makes them more responsible, right? So when we apply directed blame and we hold people responsible for their actions, it makes them more aware of the sorts of moral norms that we are blaming them related in a, that is related to that blame. And those moral norms are more salient. They realize that they could have done differently. They think differently about these sorts of situations moving forward. You know, we know this, those of us who are raising teenagers, right? Like you give more responsibility and oftentimes you are rewarded with more responsible behavior, right? If it's reasonable amount of responsible <laughs> responsibility that you give to your child. So I believe very strongly that holding people responsible has good instrumental effects in addition to being correct Greg. from this backward-looking perspective. Greg, I'll move to you. What do you think victims would say about your particular point of view? Yeah, so I, I, I've written about um, victims in both the book and other places. And in particular, and this may differ from your experience talking to victims in uh, South Africa, but... I cite a study, which is the largest study, I think, to date by the Alliance for Safety that um, surveyed, I think, thousands of uh, victims of violence um, to see what they actually wanted. And, and I was startled by this. The vast majority wanted more investment in education for prisoners. They wanted less prison time. They wanted more money spent on um, college education in prisons. They wanted DAs to listen to the victims instead of pretending to be speaking for the victims and being tough on crime. And the way I interpreted this study is essentially the primary thing victims want is they want they don't want other people to be victimized. They want something to change and they want there to be action taken so that other people are prevented from going through what they went through. And I think maybe it's unique to America. Maybe it's because there's a lot of focus on mass incarceration and its failures right now. But people are beginning, victims included, are beginning to realize that our current excessively punitive system isn't serving victims very well. Um, because it's we have one of the highest rates of recidivism. So people come in and they go out and they repeat crime and more people become victimized. The way that we punitively treat people in prison provides no methods for rehabilitation or reintegration. Um, and so I would argue that if that's what victims want, it's consistent with my model. The okay. thing I would add as a slight, slight kind of wrinkle to that is if that's if they did want something different than my model, it is we have to be very careful and not, not always feeding completely into what victims want. So like what if, for example, a victim of just petty theft wanted to see their the criminal have his hands cut off? Well, depriving them the closure of getting what they wanted is not a violation of victims' rights because victims could only demand what's just. And if what they're asking for is not just, it wouldn't be a violation of victims' rights to deny them that justice. Katrina, what's your experience with the rape work you're doing with rape victims at the moment? Now, I worked with victims um, as a criminologist when I first got out of law school, actually, for two years, running a program for Congress assessing the status of victims' rights and ran a study similar to the one that Greg is referring to of a couple thousand victims. And to me, my experience with that work and my experience now working with rape victims is what victims want isn't retributive, punitive punishment necessarily in terms of incarceration. But I think what you were saying earlier, they want what I consider kind of the, the core kernel of directed, the ability to apply directed blame. They want to be able to address the person who victimized them, to direct blame toward them, and to have a sense that that is received. It may not be received in the way they hope, right? It may not be received with feelings of guilt, but they want to be able to 
you know, stand and address the person who victimized them and to, you know, to kind of indicate and hold them to account. And that doesn't require long stints of incarceration or other sorts of things. It requires them kind of demanding recognition that they were victimized by that offender. Thank you. Greg, based on your view on on free will, do you ever have guilt? Maybe it's because I was raised Catholic. I can't shake the guilt. Um, and, and I don't necessarily think skeptics have to completely eradicate a certain type of guilt. Depends on what you build into guilt. If you build into guilt certain presuppositions that one deserves the sort of uh, negative attitudes or feelings, if the, even if they're self-directed. Well, guilt, guilt, I'll just define guilt as I've done something wrong and that something wrong has hurt somebody and I don't feel good about it. I actually think that is perfect and that could be preserved. Um, so, for example, skeptics don't have to deny wrongdoing. They don't have to deny what I call axiological judgments of good and bad, right and wrong. Like take a case even from Katrina where someone suffers from what we all agree is an excusing or exculpatory uh, mental condition and they commit a heinous act. Even if they're not morally responsible, we could still say that what they did is wrong or bad. But how, but how about you though? Do, I mean, when you do something, when do you say, when you do something wrong, do you go, well, it wasn't my fault. Or, you know, it was. No, I don't necessarily feel that way. I mean, I feel as if that what I did was wrong. I could acknowledge the wrongdoing. Um, and I could hopefully address the wrongdoing through some sort of change in myself or some sort of corrective action. Um, but I, what, I, I argue that skeptics can actually preserve that kind of guilt. So you have some agency. Yeah, you can't, you can't preserve a kind of guilt that maybe presupposes something more basic about basic dessert. But if, you, if it just includes acknowledging wrongdoing, feeling sorry, and maybe even um, acknowledging some um, desire to change. That's exactly what Katrina really wants. And that's what I want is we want agents to be responsive to the kind of reasons that others give. In this case, the harmed person gives Mm. reasons for why you should feel sorry, why Mm. you should feel guilt, to acknowledge those reasons and then modify their behavior in light of those reasons. In my view, there's nothing inconsistent with any of that part of the story and the rejection of free will. I'll end off with you, Katrina, maybe two questions. What did you learn personally about yourself from your study around psychopaths? And the last question is, what would psychopaths say about the principle of charity? How would, how would they adopt it? Well, I think what I learned is that emotionality is not as important to moral behavior as maybe we think it is. So we went through a period where we thought that morality was purely dependent on rationality. And then we went through a swing the other direction where we thought that morality was crucial or emotionality was crucial to morality. And now hopefully we're swinging back into the middle. You know, I can sometimes don't feel the right way about things. I think about doing some sort of harmful criminal action and I don't feel that self-blame or guilt. Like, I could never do that, right? I might think about Mm -hmm. doing something awful and feel Mm kind of okay about that. (laughs) But I'm, but I'm, not likely to act upon that desire or idea because I have this sort of executive control, right? Um, Oftentimes, feeling the right way about something is a good way for us to motivate ourselves to do something or stop ourselves from doing something. But we also have these other sorts of top-down executive ways of controlling our behavior. And they're equally maybe more important, I mean, what what you're really saying is you're aware of some of your worst impulses, but you believe you can control them. That's right. And I think many of us have bad impulses or don't feel the right way about things, right? Um, And yet still, we can be law-abiding. Thought experiment, last question. What would a psychopath say about the principle of charity? Uh, Psychopaths, it depends, right? So again, psychopathy is this really weird heterogeneous group. Some of them have higher than normal IQs. Some of them have lower than normal IQs. Some of them have very uh, higher than normal levels of executive functioning. And this is why they can be so manipulative. They can really kind of control other people's behavior because of these high IQs and their ability to understand what other people want to manipulate them. So I, but it's all for show, right? Um, those sorts of high functioning, as we call them, psychopaths or successful psychopaths would 
would exhibit behavior that would make you feel like you were attributing charitably <laughs> to the other person, right? They would, they, would game, they would game the principle of charity. Exactly. But they wouldn't believe any of it, right? Because they're very narcissistic and um, kind of egoistic in their views. And so they would you know, indicate that they're being charitable, but deep down they would not be charitable. On that note, I think we are going to come to a close. I uh, want to thank you both. Today's actually been quite hard for me emotionally, as I said, listening to Greg and challenging myself and just trying to be as rational as I can. And I want to thank you both. It's been illuminating as always. And thank you so much, Emil. Uh, any final comments from you? Well, I think really you've both just embodied the principle of charity so enormously in the way that you engage with each other. But I'm just personally consoled that this conversation was always going to happen in exactly the way it did. So um, <laughs> I enjoyed it nonetheless. It was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We still deserve praise for how it went. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media, where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you soon. We are at the end of an era and on the precipice of a new one. What do we keep? What do we leave behind? Hear from 16 thinkers, including Stephen Fry, Roxanne Gay, Slavoj Zizek, Walid Ali, Naomi Klein, Peter Singer, Sam Mostyn, and more. Eight conversations, eight responses in sound, one podcast to record this moment. Subscribe to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas wherever you find your podcasts and join us at The In-Between. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.